0: The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Tommy Guns, an official selection of this year's New Directors New Films, and winner of the Best European Film Prize at the Locarno Film Festival. This portrait of the final days of Portuguese colonial rule in Angola playfully swerves from wartime drama to zombie flick to escape thriller with exhilarating control. Tommy Guns is now playing at Bam Rose Cinemas in New York and coming soon to select theaters. Learn more at KinoLorber.com you know to really make very very good painting is extremely difficult i think of course.
1: you know it's um you know there's only one picasso in the world sort of thing you know uh, and being a film director there are hundreds and thousands of film directors aren't there?
2: But there is only one peter greenaway in well, the world I as well well you say the
1: nicest things
0: Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Croup.
2: And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment.
0: The last few years have seen several new restorations of the films of Peter Greenaway, the British director known for classics like The Draftsman's Contract and The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover. His films are formally exacting and erudite, yet full of play and perversion, and are as provocative today as they were upon release.
2: The latest Greenaway film to receive a restoration is Drowning by Numbers, which has just been re-released by Severn Films on Blu-ray. Made in 1988, the film is a metaphysical puzzle, equal parts fairy tale and process piece. The story follows three women, a mother, her daughter and her niece, all named Sissy Colpits as they drown their husbands one by one. They cover up their crimes with the help of a local coroner, Majit, and his son, Smunt, both of whom are obsessed with games of all stripes, moral, athletic, mathematical.
0: Shot by Greenaway's frequent collaborator, Sasha Virni, Drowning by Numbers is one of the best of the director's 80s features, as clinical as it is maximalist. A couple of weeks ago, we called up Greenaway over Zoom for a freewheeling conversation about his memories of making the film, his long career, and his thoughts on mortality and art.
2: We hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm just going to jump right in here, since you brought up painting. I know you you obviously paint a lot as well. How do you find the experience of actually collaborating with other people on a set, like an art designer, a cinematographer, which is very different from painting, right, where you control all of the elements?
1: Well, I you know, I, tr- I mean, you've given me the cue there. I mean, I try to control as much as I can. Unfortunately, I can't write music, though I've had... You know some extraordinary elaborate collaborations with very very good uh, composers, and I mean composers, not people who just write music for cinema, but um, you know first rate, uh, independent um, composers.
0: Right. Michael Nyman is the is the composer for this film, right? Yes, indeed. Yes, um, but I mean
1: I've certainly worked with Philip Glass and. Uh, john cage and all sorts of luminaries who used to work in new york and certainly back in the 60s 70s and 80s so i've been very uh, excited and fascinated and pleased and proud to have those sorts of uh, associations but no uh, michael nyman i think we must have made about 20 films together not always feature films but uh, the collaboration was a very very good one but um you know we all have to go our different ways and he wanted different things from cinema and so did i so in the end uh, we parted company but i still listen to his music especially for this film with great delight
0: yeah can you talk a little bit about the music for this film i know that it's uh, i've read that it's that it's one of the structural elements for the narrative itself well,
1: you know, I mean, I don't know what you feel, but, you know, an awful lot of film music is derivative and illustrational. You know, give me 20 minutes of excitement and that extraordinary idea, you know, give me 10 seconds of music that expresses silence, which sounds like an enormous contradiction. But, you know, that is the way. And there is a way that a lot of film music is very, very illustrational. And I always wanted the music to be much more. Um, should we say structural and organizing and i also felt too that it wasn't too good an idea to let the composer um too much into should we say the narrativity or the essence of detail because it often ends up in my experience of the composer or the person writing the music becomes merely illustrational and i don't think that's very good and uh, I think, again, with collaboration, certainly with very serious people like Michael Nyman, you must allow them all the space that they need. So you don't want to crab them down and force them into straitjackets whereby they are supposed to, as it were, find a music, uh, musical equivalent for a literary narrative idea. So after you know, supplying them, I suppose, with the outlines of a structure. I say, now do go away and do what you want to do and we'll make it work. And, um, you know, originally uh, my first job in the film industry was as a film editor. So I have all that background experience about music editing.
2: Mm. And... um In Drowning by Numbers specifically, can you talk about the concept behind the score?
1: Well, it's meant to be a sort of lyrical comedy. I don't think that sort of genre, because actually really exists as a phenomenon, does it? But it's meant to be comedic, but also meant to look extremely beautiful. And it is a portrait of a particular landscape that I remember very fondly from my childhood. In a curious way, you know, I even put myself in it as that 10-year-old little boy called Smut, who um, actually circumcises himself, something I've certainly never done, but uh, that is the fictional element. But a lot of the other thing, that uh, association with death, for example, and being quite melodramatic about dead animals and corpses, and certainly collecting insects, that is all uh, biographical, autobiographical Mm. indeed.
2: Oh, but um, I was curious about the score, the concept behind the score, because the score has a very specific repetitive structure
1: well i think that that is a characteristic of michael nyman i mean he has two i suppose basic um influences he's very much interested in english uh music of um i suppose the time of purcell for example but also he's um you know very much interested in contemporary minimal music I know our composers don't like to be referred to as minimal anymore. That's really an old-fashioned idea. But when we were all collaborating in, indeed, the mid-'80s, the word minimal, which I think Michael Nyman, as a music critic, actually invented and, and introduced to the psychology, um psychology, was, uh, was part and parcel, indeed, of the music scene at that time. Uh, most of it coming out indeed uh, from your city of new york um so i think you know those two characteristics were very good for me and there's a great sense of irony about michael's music you know it was slightly tongue-in-cheek maybe it's tongue-in-cheek because it is the quotation it's quotation but often buried deep within the only Particular imaginative of excitement of Michael himself. In this case, it's Mozart, is that right? No, there is one piece of Mozart which I uh, repeatedly refers to, but I think that Michael Naiman, Michael Michael Naiman's music would be more referential to um, people coming just to perform Mozart. I think so, especially English. Mm, mm, okay. Uh,
0: like mm-hmm. you mentioned, Purcell,
1: Purcell and a bit of handle in there as well, maybe as well. And so, I think the irony is born for me because I think my films are very ironic. Would you not agree? I don't take myself desperately seriously. I don't cinema desperately serious as itself. I mean, you know, there's something very infantile about cinema, don't you think? It's still very, very young. We've already said it's only two hundred years old. It isn't very old for a serious, should we say, adult um, art movie, art movie, you know, an art genre, you know
2: yeah, we were we were arguing while we were preparing for this conversation, what word would be right to use for your films in your presence, ironic, dry, unsentimental, you know, just trying to name that specific tone that you have,
1: ok. Well, those adjectives would go down well. I applaud yeah. them. excellent. Okay. <laughs> you obviously, people who were, uh, are members of my ideal audience.
2: Oh, great. So I, I do want to go back kind of to the beginning because we we just jumped into the music. But just to kind of uh, I talk about some, some broader ideas, um, your work has seen a lot of retrospectives in the last couple of years, restorations. Uh, there was a BFI retrospective. Um, how do you feel about looking at back at your work right now and have you discovered anything new about it um you know sort of in interacting with people who are discovering it anew
1: well i i often thought i mean nobody could mistake me for an hollywood animal i'm sure that's true but you know cinema is cinema and all cinema is somewhat alike in that great projection theater in the sky so it obviously uses you know hollywood tropes and does so you know in some senses with satire and irony and so on and if you've seen a lot of those very short early films i made mainly black and white often and certainly quite short little sort of filmic essays um there is a constant playing with the both of should we say the public and the private versions so you know i'm interested as much in michael snow and jonas meekers as i would be in ridley scott you know, the whole phenomenology of cinema is grist to the mill. And there have been certain characteristics which I've taken over from my fascinations in painting. Uh, one other thing is that whole um, phenomenology called land art. I was very interested, indeed, both the Americans and certainly the British people who went out into the countryside again and made landscapes speak in a
0: new way.
1: There is a way landscape art, landscape painting has been around
0: forever. Sort of the Michael Heiser and those those figures?
1: Yes, and I was thinking maybe people like Richard Long, for example, Mm -hmm. like James Turrell, who drove a volcano. And uh, those interests are still still continuing. Like um, I've recently made a film about Brancusi. And Brancusi, minimal artist, was very much interested in the notion of um, truth to materials and utilized materials he could take directly from the landscape. Um, My film about Brancusi is about his apprenticeship Uh, when he was about 26 he was so wretchedly poor he came from a poor family of um of uh, shepherds and he couldn't even afford the train fare to get to paris he's living in the center of romania and uh, in about the early 1900s if you wanted to be anywhere significant in terms of art you had to be in paris you know i mean um modigliani was already there uh, gertrude stein was there and soon oh of, you know, Salvador Dali and and Bunuel and all those other people would certainly be there and he wanted to join them. So he had to walk there. And my film about Brancusi called "Walk into Paris Indeed. is very much about the, I think, two, it took him took two years to walk there. It wasn't in a desperate hurry. He was looking, looking, looking and making works of art as he travelled through the forests and the, the wildernesses of... Uh, european landscape which is very different then from what it is now you know there weren't any six lane uh highways there weren't any grandiose pig farms um and a lot of the places were still very much wildernesses which is something we exploit into the film but without worrying you with the politics that film is now ensconced in a laboratory in Rome, and I cannot get my hands on it because of the quarreling of producers. But we hope to free it sometime or other so the rest of the world hopefully can see it, because it's very much about land art and the beginnings of my interest in, shall we say, landscape in general, which
0: certainly is a feature of Drawing by Numbers. It seems like across your work, you've kind of expressed an interest in the physical world above any kind of metaphysical interpretation of, of human life. And um, I think in this film, you know, this film, in many of your films, but this one in particular, it's structured around these games and these yeah. num- number games. Yes. Um, I think we, we just kind of wanted to ask about that framework. This could be the introduction to a long saga. Of course. Of course. I we have
2: all the time in the world
1: well i'm not sure that's true I've I know, know. but um i i um trained as a painter and the very best painting is non-narrative why should the bar be narrative now, that might be a surprise to you because the whole world believes that cinema should tell you a story but i don't think that is necessarily true And so I've often argued for what could be described as a non-narrative cinema. Let me show you things. Let me show you things by all means. But they don't have to be linked up with a very literary device, which we essentially associate with um, the novel, for example. Though I do think the ideal literary format for cinema is the short story rather than
0: although in this film there's almost like a fairy tale narrative structure right?
1: yes no and it, it, it's it's a landscape seen by children mm-hmm. uh, a number of uh, important children and there's a skipping girl for example and right. that she comes out of spanish paintings. she's often dressed like spanish infanta Her references to hundreds of filmmakers uh, to hundreds of painters in this alaska's in, in there and and Other Spanish painters like Goya, with its sort of sense of, you know, death and horror and uh, all those sort of girl with
0: the dog, right? There's that painting of that Goya painting, yeah. Yeah.
1: And he has a little boy who eventually commits suicide, and uh, through the film actually has the audacity to try and circumcise himself. That little boy, though, let's put the circumcision to one side, which certainly is not autobiographical, but there are lots of autobiographical things about him. I certainly pursued road kills, and you can see it happening in the film. Mm-hmm. Of the celebratory firework every time I found a corpse. Oh, you did! That was re- that was something you yes, did. That's me, yes. Um, that's and, fascinating. Uh, it was a so concern for uh, death and dying and funerals. Mm-hmm. And last ceremonies and so on, but about to make a film with Morgan Freeman, called Luca Mortis, which we hope to film in two months' time. And that too is still, in a way, continuing those ideas. You know, I think we've spent what the last three decades worrying ourselves silly about sex in all its confirmations, and now I think we ought to seriously consider the questions about death, which till most of us so the film is called luca mortis and it's taking place in luca which is a city not very far away from uh, 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 in 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 tuscany in northern italy and it is about um, you know we all certainly absolutely know we're going to die there's no reprieve from that particular situation but maybe we should try and get a handle on it a couple of years ago, I made a film about Eisenstein in Mexico, and the Mexicans say that death should be your friend and not your enemy. So, this is a film very much again, I suppose, picking up some ideas indeed from turning by numbers about questions of um, suicide and euthanasia. These are all questions which are now very much part of social media discussion with ever increasing numbers. And um, I want to make a serious questions uh, a serious piece of cinema about how do we confront uh, death is it possible indeed to have a happy death is this true now has it true 200 years ago is it true 2000 years ago and it's about uh, morgan freeman who plays a writer who goes to northern italy to look for his origins but also to examine the possibility is it possible to have in this day and age in the year 2023, 24 is it possible to have a happy death and even to ask the even more existentialist question is death necessary
0: you said that uh uh, death is that we all have to reckon with the fact that death is inevitable and i just push back and say that we don't know what's going to happen in the future that's my that's my approach
1: then you know we have to ask the next question do we have a future yeah
2: yeah, and there's there's also this uh, refrain and drowning by numbers. A great many things are dying very violently all the time.
1: Is that not true now? And has that not always been true?
2: It is, and I I think what I'm interested in in you know how you represent death is as Clint was saying. It's your inquiry doesn't seem metaphysical. It seems very physical. You know, most artists who are concerned with death are often concerned with imagining what comes after or how it fits into some sort of ordered understanding of the world. Right. And I think you you have this, you, you said confronting death. And I think that's very much what even we drowning by numbers does. It's really just confronting what is essentially an abyss.
0: True. I mean,
2: death as something that is a material reality, not right, right. a metaphorical.
0: And you see that in the, the cook and the thief. Indeed. And, of course, in The Zed in Two Knots with the repeated, the rotting animals.
1: That's right. Yeah, but I don't think you can... Um, I don't think you can consider my film as being zombie movies. Would you ever say that? <laughs> they are, I hope, you know, an intelligent uh, and emotionally sensitive approach to this inevitability. Hmm.
2: Of course. I mean, I think I would consider zombie movies to be obsessed with the metaphysical even if they are about corpses you know i mean they they give human form to death which is what right. you're doing is something far more challenging, you know.
1: I should certainly hope so. I mean, there are been, you know, the, the, the Greeks said there are two phenomena, eros and thanatos. And most art, certainly cinema, deals either with the beginnings of life, which certainly means copulation and birth, and the ends, which means death. And most cinema, would you not agree, deals essentially with eros. You know, it's said that cinema is really a medium or the getting of wisdom of very young people, adolescents' first sexual experiences, first uh, ideas about love, uh, about those sort of um, very early. And I've made loads of movies about that sort of proposition. So now I want to move into a perhaps more rarefied area to make some serious considerations about the notions of our confrontation
2: with death. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. speaking of death and maybe resurrection i was curious uh-huh. we have uh-huh.
1: an evangelical Interviewer here?
2: (laughs) No, but I was curious about the restoration process for Drowning by Numbers. I heard that you were involved in the process. I mean, you gave feedback. And I'm curious what you look for um, in a restoration. What kind of things are you particular about? I know different artists have sort of different approaches to restoration. Some want to preserve how the film was intentionally, some want to, you know, upgrade or change some things. I was curious about your approach.
1: Well, it's never going to happen, but I'd like to remake these films all over again. I would like to correct the longers. They're all too long, for example. They should be much shorter. I should make them sharper and wittier and funnier, I think. And to be able to put forward my, shall we say, I won't say, uh, I would say my ironic approach. You know, there is a way that... Uh, well, I maybe I can say that now I'm 80, you know, and as you get older, you begin to find about the varieties and the hubris of human understanding is highly questionable. And I think uh, a good ironic attitude to our existence is a, a good way to be able to combat the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune.
2: I think there's too much short and fast moving images nowadays, though. So I I don't think you should um, cut the longers short, you know?
1: Well, I mean, longers, I think, more in its sort of, um, you know, aesthetic sense rather than it's simply time-based. There are times when, yes, okay, we've heard enough of that now. Shut up, Greenaway. Get on with something else. Let's move on. But then, you know, well, you can tell from my conversation, I'm interested in words. I'm interested in literature. I enjoy that, maybe too self-indulgently. Maybe some of the self-indulgent ought to be scraped away. That would be my reaction, I think, to your question. What do I think of them now? But I am often really quite pleasantly surprised. There are some really, really beautiful images there, and they're as much to do with the cameraman as they are to do with me. So I'm happy about that. But I'm, you know, I am, I'm trained as a painter, and I want ex- exquisite images.
0: I wanted to ask about how you worked with Sasha Vierny, the cinematographer, on this and, you know, throughout your career.
1: Well, hes he, you've probably heard, I mean, he used to work with René, Alain René. I think last year in Marienbad is my favourite film of the last 60 years, but he worked with Bunuel and some Extraordinaries. So, I mean, a man of vast experiences, and I think he was actually an assistant of an assist way back with Jean Cocteau, which puts him in the late 1930s. So his... Um, his knowledge of cinema is extremely wide. I'm not so sure he necessarily, unfortunately he's dead now, he died about 10 years ago, um, would be so totally involved in contemporary digital cinema, which I certainly was, but his command of, shall we say, celluloid cinema is extraordinary. He had a whole vocabulary of tricks, which he gradually introduced me to, you know, how to outline with chalk dust This every staircase and if you remember last year in Mariam Bad, all those trees had shadows which were artificially painted on the gravel. Phenomenon like that which you know are very much part and parcel of seeing and looking and he was a great seer and looker and my experience with him was absolutely very valuable indeed.
2: I was um, curious about the I think about 26 minute sort of trailer you made for Drowning by Numbers, uh called Fear of Drowning, which I believe is included in this severin films uh restored edition of Drowning by Numbers. Right. I think that's a fantastic and singular um, you know, supplement to the film. And right. you you do the work of the critic, critic, the interpreter, you know, you just right. lay bare all your um references in that in that um film, in that short. And I think what I find so striking about it is it's very dry. It's kind of a boring you know, film yes. to watch compared to Drowning by Numbers, which is actually very playful. Yes, indeed. And I, I wanted to ask you about your reasons for making Fear of Drowning. I've always...
1: Um, you know, you get so involved in the filmmaking process and that involves the actors and the, your collaborators that it's very difficult... To leave the film alone, to leave it behind. And I've often found that one film, uh one new film I start is really an attempt to realign myself with what I've just finished. So if you've ever seen The Baby of Macon, it's really a reworking of Prospero's books. And this has quite frequently happened, I think. Um you know, I so enjoyed one particular film, I would like to relive the experience. So I think in. It- partial answer to your question well i'd like you to take that reply as uh, is indeed an answer but maybe i'm showing off as well it's a desire you know to play the game yeah look I, can mm. do this. look I can do this look i can do this but i mean it has to be can you cannot make a film on your own look we can do this lee can do this i don't know whether you saw you must have seen Prospero's books. I did the same thing. There's a very, very long title sequence which involves hundreds of people on Prospero's Magic Island, which is supposed to have been in the Bermuda Triangle because Shakespeare always used other people's plots as an entire, I think, 36 plays are other people's scenarios originally. But the one original film, the one original play he made was, in fact, um was The Tempest, which the Prosperous book is based on. And it's supposed to, he's supposed to have read an Elizabethan newspaper. Yes, they did have newspapers in Elizabethan times, only one page perhaps, did report about a ship mysteriously disappearing in what is now known as the Bermuda Triangle. So here's a newspaper story of about 1600, rewritten by Shakespeare to make The Tempest and then reworked again by Greenaway to make Prospero's books.
2: Uh, and I mean, uh, there's also the famous Amy Césaire version. I don't know if you've read, which which imagines the Tempest as a post-colonial tale. I mean, that it's it's very it's rich.
1: Really treated as a science fiction proposition, I think a couple of times too. Helen Mirren, I think, has played Prospero. So
2: Prospera. Which,
1: yes, <laughs> yeah. gender gender manipulative. Yeah, too.
2: yeah. But um, getting back to fear of drowning, the reason. I'm curious about it because I I was wondering if you were sort of satirizing the critic you know, what no, is your is attitude? Yeah, but, your you
1: know, you can words. see that my cinema is very self-reflexive. Yes, it wants to remind you all the time. Look, this is not a slice of life. This is not a window on the world. It's a film. and More than that, it's a Greenaway film. So accept it as an artifice. I want you to understand that what you're watching is an artificial phenomenon. And I believe can be even richer still when you understand that because it makes
0: you the audience as a collaborator when i was watching fear of journey i was wondering were you ever surprised by things that appeared, the structures that appeared to you that you had not planned on indeed, were you, as indeed. you were re- yes. reading the film again were you like oh i hadn't even noticed that there's this thread
1: yes that's the, absolutely the freudian
2: true. slips so right. to speak. and that is
1: good isn't it that's good the film is teaching you something when you've been trying to teach the film something so it's a reversal and i enjoy that Yes, indeed.
2: I wonder if this is subconscious, but the way names work in your films and actually across your films. So, of course, Sissy Colpitz in Drowning by Numbers is a name that has appeared in other films of yours. Can you talk about that?
1: Have you seen Z and Two Noughts? Yes. I mean, even Z and Two Noughts, you know, the Z is a zebra, last letter of the alphabet. And, you know, that famous um, anti Darwin phrase. Um, created by indeed creationists who say that is a zebra a black animal with white stripes or a white animal with black stripes it's playing that game all the time so it's laughing at creationists but also it's laughing at darwin too i mean isn't charles Darwin with his long beard another version of of, i suppose michelangelo's god on the sistine chapel you know for darwin now read god for god now read darwin playing with all these tropes as we manoeuvre through, you know, our ever-expanding expendi- uh, um, knowledge. But again, more that expanding knowledge always tends us, you know, we still know, we still know far less about the world than we actually thought we did do. And the more we know, somehow the more less we know. It's a curious sort of conundrum. And again, that's 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 built into the fallibility, the fallibility of everything, the fallibility of existence, the fallibility of cinema, the fallibility of narrative, you know. Why let the truth get in the way of good stories? And I constantly allow that to happen.
2: But what about what about Sissy Colpitz? Where did that come from?
1: Well, she's C, isn't it? Cubit centimeters, and she's the three people times three. Um and smart is a little tiny object. He's the name I've given myself, the autobiographical, actually, in the film. And uh, you know, even magic is a combination of maggot, which is very much associated with decaying corpses, and magic. So he's both the maggot and the magic. But I mean, if you take again, if I come back again to um a certain two noughts, you know, the two noughts are the two characters. I think the names are Oswald and Oliver. The Deuce Brothers, right? That's right, and it's playing all the games all the time, all the time, all the time, yes. It's, again, about self-referencing and an attempt to make a demonstration that you're only watching a film.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm also curious about your work with actors. Um, I think actors have a very interesting role in your films, a very interesting place, because your films are not necessarily character-driven. They are in some ways objects, but you also elicit very unusual performances. Like in Drowning by Numbers, uh Brian Prinkle in the in the opening scene, I mean you you literally strip him naked, uh, and then kill him. Yes. And uh, you know, I, I'm just curious about your work with actors, especially on this film. What kind of briefs did you give them? You know, what do you remember about and how did these actors take on the challenge challenges of your film?
1: Well, we've we've managed to collaborate with some extraordinary people um prosperous books for example is a really celebrated this has ikmar bergman actors in it it has Michel leblanc in it all sorts of extraordinary people we gave them such elaborate costumes sometimes yeah. it's quite difficult to recognize who they are which mm. was not a very good idea um but i mean if you take somebody like brian denny for example in the belly of an architect um, he often gives us an extraordinarily sensitive performance from somebody who's associated indeed with sylvester stallone and very much hollywood 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 movies um, i remember speaking to his daughters once at a film festival saying that brian actually thought that his performance in belly of architect was the very best thing he'd ever done which i'm delighted about but he did give i think a very fulsome and vulnerable performance but that again you know we're back to death again aren't we here's a man who's dying of stomach cancer though it's disguised somehow in association with the um with the the belly configuration of his wife she is uh, purportedly uh, her belly is swelling for goodness and his belly is swelling for badness so we play all those sort of opposite games which are part and parcel indeed of that film But in answer, I must come to the point and answer your question. We have a script. I write the script. I always write the script. There's only one script I've never written, and that is the script for Prospero's Books, which, of course, is basically Shakespeare, who wrote all the dialogue. But all the other 60 films I've made, including 15 feature films, it's me talking there. And since I spent pains and pains and pains writing that script and making it as readily possible for what i intentionally intend the film to mean it uh, has to be uh, acknowledged so i am very loath to allow my actors to depart from the script Uh, okay you know an and a but or because can be changed but you know all the major all the major sort of arguments need to be kept and that also applies to the way they move i remember uh, um you know some actors saying why can't i put my hand there because i say it doesn't mix it doesn't work with the symmetry of the painting i want you to put your hand there etc so you know uh quite quite so evidently and one must respect their opinion you know actors need to contribute indeed and they, and they do and they certainly do and my actors and collaborators certainly contribute to the film enormously but um there is a way. This the script is like it's like the music score for a ninety-two piece orchestra. You all have to obey it in a curious way.
2: And and are you? Do you think of yourself as the conductor or?
1: Yes, I think that the music comparison is a good one. The composer and conductor. It should be yes. Unfortunately, I cannot write music, which is a great frustration. But therefore, well, I have worked with some extraordinarily good composers. There is a way, I think that i can only think of two actors who refused to work with me ever again and one was alec guinness who we wanted to use in a very early movie but i think that was because of religious uh, uh, problems he discovered i was uh, an atheist and he was uh, died in the war roman Catholic, so there was a way we were not going to be able to see eye to eye about the afterlife
0: that could have led to a very interesting performance
1: oh, you could indeed, you know, it's a great actor yes Um, there's another guy um, I think I can't remember his name now he played uh, he because the first time I worked with Sir John Gilgood was in a version of Dante's Dante Alighieri's um, The Inferno of the comedy Uh, um, What's his name Uh, and forgot his name but there was a character who also played I think um uh, Virgil, and uh, no, I think oh it's a long time ago now. I'm uh, sorry, my, my my memory is full of holes. But there, there were one or two actors who, for all sorts of political and religious reasons, refused to work with me again. But everybody else was, you know, are actually still occasionally get a postcard. When are you writing a new script for me, Mister Mister Greenway? Which is a delight, of course, and I will endeavour if I live long enough. Um, I don't know I think most people seem to be dying off. certainly European males at 81 so I think I have another six months left.
2: Isn't that what you said a couple of years ago? <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> Indeed. And that you know was I was putting forward an intellectual argument because I think men over 80 are pretty useless they can't contribute much to the world you know Einstein had done everything by the time he was
0: 30. What about Joe Biden?
1: well yes well mr
0: trump is also very old too isn't he Uh, yeah i i do i do think so he's right up there with
1: you want to be an olympic swimmer you have to be finished by 15 and you know even Tolstoy had written war and peace by the time he was 45 so most people you know most of the creativity of the world is done by very young people or comparatively young people and I, I don't think, you know, can you think? I mean, Picasso made one or two good prints, didn't he? Aged, I think, into his 80s. Uh, Titian, Tiziano made some brilliant paintings after he was over 80. How about
2: Agnes Varda?
0: Well, yes, that's true. And there's also a... Philip Gustin, I believe, painted. Yeah. Frederick yes.
2: Wiseman still made it, making movies. Yeah, you...
0: Twombly, you come... what about yes. Twombly? He's still going oh, strong. <laughs>
1: Well, if you think in people, you know, a lot of uh, famous film directors are still alive, aren't they? It's that Portuguese film director, I've forgotten his name, died at 103 or something. Yeah,
0: Manuel de Oliveira.
1: Yeah, but if you look at his last four films, which I've seen, they were all very much the same, weren't they? You know, do you think he actually made a contribution to cinema after his 80th birthday?
0: I don't know. That's not. It's not for us to say on this particular podcast. It
1: is for you to say. You're going. You are going to be old one day. You are probably going to
0: live till you're eighty. When I'm eighty, I will. I'll get back to you. Okay. All right. Very good.
1: Yeah, but you see, it is interesting. It's okay for women. Women have a purpose after eighty. They could be very, very good grandmothers, and actually, in evolutionary terms, uh, Darwin actually suggested it's important for grandmothers to exist, but I see no real purpose in grandfathers.
2: Okay, but why must you be useful? I mean, do you have to contribute? Well, I
1: do. No, I've always believed this,
2: you know, maybe because
1: I'm Welsh and the Welsh believed in educational necessity. You know, I do think we're not here just to fuck about. We're here to do something. We have been given all sorts of amazing virtues and capabilities and so on and so on, and I think we are... You know, I think it sounds rather grandiose which you're on that great, huge beach of the world in which there are millions and millions of grains of sand. We need to make a contribution, even if it's only one grain of sand. We must leave something behind. I sincerely believe that's true. I don't think that's narcissistic, but I do think if you want to search for a purpose, and most people are searching for purposes, am I right? Even young people like you, who might have given up God a long time ago, like I did when I was 13, but I'm still looking for purposes. And I think that civilization, in a curious way, despite all its all its negativity, has got it licked, hasn't it? It's well worthwhile living, and I think we ought to return something.
0: Well, I'm sure that you still have plenty to contribute, but I did want to ask, uh, we were talking about characters and script writing, and I do think the characters in this while the film is not character driven are very vivid. Like they're complex and complete caricatures or versions of people.
1: You're absolutely right. Those three
0: delightful women, I can watch them endless. Yes. And Magget and Smut, these are very interesting characters. I mean,
2: they they feel to me like they exist out even outside of the film. You know, I feel like I've picked up a collection of short stories with the same characters and this film I've opened one story and maybe that's because of the way themes and characters seem to kind of exist across all your films, like a big shared subconscious.
1: Yeah. Well, they are all to my girl. Just give me one moment. I just need to answer the front door. Yeah,
2: go ahead. Hello.
0: This is like when the police came to Hummer's. I know. Okay,
1: I have to move on now, I'm afraid. Thank you very much for this conversation. It's been very entertaining. And, okay, power to your elbow, whatever your elbow wants to do. And I hope I can show you some more more movies in the future.
2: I have no doubt. Thank you so so much, much. Richard. And have a good evening. It's been a pleasure.
0: I will. Okay, goodbye. Goodbye. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Eingy. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Tommy Guns. An official selection of this year's New Directors New Films and winner of the Best European Film Prize at the Locarno Film Festival, this portrait of the final days of Portuguese colonial rule in Angola playfully swerves from wartime drama to zombie flick to escape thriller with exhilarating control. Tommy Guns is now playing at Bam Rose Cinemas in New York and coming soon to select theaters. Learn more at KinoLorber.com.